to Carpet City Cinema, a Hilo Films podcast. I'm David Weaver. And uh, we are now three months in on this uh, whole new endeavor I mentioned a while ago of switching over from a nine-to-five job that I hated to something that's a little more tolerable, the art of reselling. And, uh, you know, the whole goal of that, as I mentioned before, was to try to free up some time. It was kind of becoming impossible to both juggle the reselling, which was a side hustle, with my full-time job and get anything done uh, moving forward on Hilo Films projects. It was really grinding things down to a halt. And uh, finally, are definitely seeing some real progress. Um, you know, going in on this three-month mark, we've finally checked off everything we need to do with the uh, Blu-ray. We've... Um, got the podcast kind of going up more at a, at a more consistent uh, rate. Uh, squared away the uh, still somewhat secret uh, The Last Frankenstein art art piece uh, that we will be revealing hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, something that will be available for people to purchase. Uh, really impressive piece of art, uh, specially created for us and touching on the film. And as soon as I find out uh, how best to go about having that printed up and uh then we'll be able to actually reveal that art design and put it up for purchase on the website. And now, finally, this week, uh, really kind of digging at long last back into the screenplay for the sequel, and uh, you know, diving more into the research that's necessary for that. So, it is good to finally thing, see things kind of come together and uh, become reality. The plan, the plan is actually coming together. It was a dark week for fans of film. Uh, we lost two pretty big names uh, for uh, those who uh, are interested in the classic era, and even going up to modern days, actually, one of them. The the more classic era, one of the two, though, was uh, Don Murray, the Academy Award-dominated actor who nabbed his Oscar nom for his very first film, the 1956 uh, William Inge adaptation, Bus Stop, which is the movie that uh, some people kind of look at as showcasing that uh, Marilyn Monroe, who was the star of the movie, could actually actually had a true dramatic acting ability, not just looks, not just uh, you know comedic timing, but also had true uh, dramatic talent. And Murray was her co-star in that, and yeah, right off the bat, uh, nominated Best Supporting Actor nom. And uh, the film also starred Hope Lang, who Murray was married to for a while back in the day. But he wanted to have a pretty good uh, career, a lot of noteworthy performances in films like A Hatful of Rain, which is a film that deals with um, drug addiction, and it was a movie I, I really watched a lot in my youth. Just, you know, that's what all uh, kids in the 90s do, is they watch uh, 1950s drug addiction movies. But hey, uh, it was a movie I was a big fan of and kind of introduced me to uh, Tony Franciosa, an actor who I've gone on to become a big fan of. Uh, he was also in The Bachelor Party, not the Tom Hanks one, but the uh, this is the uh, late 50s Patty Chayefsky adaptation. Uh, he was in Advising Consent, Otto Preminger's film, uh, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. A lot of people know him from that in the science fiction uh, fan base. He played the uh, the villain of the piece, so to speak, Governor Breck. Um, he was he even showed up in a Hammer Films uh, entry, The Viking Queen, and uh, did some directing too. Uh, probably best known directing-wise for uh, The Cross and the Switchblade, which was kind of a, a religious-themed film that... Also has kind of a footnote in history for being the debut, marking the debut performance of the great Eric Estrada. But uh, Murray's uh, career really was kind of that first 10 years after Bus Stop was when he was really uh, on the rise. Um, 
and he, you know, he continued to act right up until his passing, but that was really kind of his peak was that first 10 year period, but continued to work on, um, on the small screen. He was, uh, known for his, uh, recurring role on, uh, Knott's Landing and also was on the Twin Peaks revival. Um, but yeah, I mean, incredibly long, uh, and, a very, a very varied career. And he uh, passed away age 94. And then the other one that, uh, even uh, newer audience would be more familiar with is, is of course, we lost, unfortunately, uh, Carl Weathers, age 76. Of course, Apollo Creed in the Rocky films and star of movies like Predator and Action Jackson. Um, you know, his career starts in the early 70s. He was on the, in the NFL for a couple seasons uh, with the Raiders, uh, played a year in the Canadian League, Football League, uh, but then got into acting and uh, you know, really established himself uh, with the first Rocky film. But, uh, you know, throughout the 70s and 80s, um, showed up in a lot of different action uh, movies and also was on the TV series In the Heat of the Night, as well as some other shows. And then in the 90s, with his performance in Happy Gilmore, the Adam Sandler movie, kind of reintroduced himself to people all over again and kind of got kind of... um, because by that time, the Rocky franchise, I mean, he was, uh, his character, obviously, as we all know, had died in the fourth one, but just the Rocky franchise as a whole was kind of... uh, you know, in stagnant waters and his, uh, his cachet with the uh, audiences was a little, well, it was a little more maybe past its prime, but that kind of like seemed to reinvigorate things and gone on to just have even success with another generation beyond that with his role in the Mandalorian. And that actually is the uh, series that finally got him an Emmy nomination and showed up in other films too throughout the years. He was actually in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He was in Force 10 from Navarone. Uh, He was in uh, Death Hunt with Charles Bronson and Lee Marvin. So just incredible body of work. He was also on, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Law and Order, but uh, Dick Wolf also, who produces the Law and Order series, also has his Chicago franchise. Uh, And uh, Weathers was uh, on uh, some of those different installments uh, in that and that uh, franchise. So sorry to see him leave us. Uh, incredible body of work. Um, and just truly uh, an actor, you know, you, you can't just be big to have a presence in films. It's also, it takes more than just size. There's a lot of people in the athletic, with athletic backgrounds that have tried unsuccessfully to make the transition to uh, becoming actors. Um, but Weathers was definitely one who had not just the physique, but also the ability to utilize it, who had the acting talent to just be more than just a big body in the room. And uh, really glad that he finally did get that recognition with the Mandalorian near the end, because uh, it's good to see them finally see, uh, tip the hat to his acting abilities and realize that he was just more than just, uh, uh, you know, a jacked up, you know, cut guy who looked like he could kick your butt. And lastly, the British BAFTA-nominated actor Michael Jaston passed away, age 88. Um, an actor with a really uh, rich rich background in stage uh, who never quite achieved the breakout uh, role kind of fame in, in film that uh, perhaps, perhaps his career had been looking for because he was in his big role in film that uh, drew, the, drew a lot of attention to him was as uh, Sir Nicholas II in uh, Nicholas and Alexandra, the 1971 uh, big-budget epic film about the Russian Revolution. And that was a film that had uh, a lot of the kind of people behind it that there was uh, hope and expectation that it would be a huge success. It was directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, who was just coming off the Best Director win he had for Patton. It was produced by Sam Spiegel, who was a at least a three-time Best Picture Oscar winner. He had produced The African Queen on the Waterfront, 
the Bridge in the River Kwai, and Lords of Arabia. So you had the sweeping historical epic with all these huge names attached to it. Uh, and when it came out, it it got kind of lukewarm reviews. It was a big financial uh, uh, bust. It, it lost the studio, Columbia Pictures, you know, millions of dollars. And so that that kind of prevented him, regardless of what people thought of his own performance, from really kind of achieving that that kind of leading man status in film that perhaps um, if the film had been more successful, he would have, he would have earned, but still very familiar actor to, to um, audiences just for his work. For example, on TV, he was a a regular on the popular British show Emmerdale farm. And for fans of uh, genre television, he was uh, on the original doctor who, uh, and the, during the sixth doctor run, they had a whole story arc over one of the seasons called the trial of a time Lord, uh, where the doctor played by Colin Baker was, put on trial and uh jason played the uh, character who is the prosecutor he also starred in the uh classic 1979 miniseries adaptation of john le carré or car i don't know how to i'm probably totally butchering that guy's name but tinker taylor soldier spy he was in that he also played rochester in the bbc's adaptation 1973 of jane eyre and uh some of his other movies uh Noteworthy ones were uh, the uh, musical 70s adaptation of Alice in Wonderland that was made in Britain called Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. He was in the uh, adaptation of Harold Pinter's The Homecoming and also showed up in some horror films, too, that people might know. uh, British horror films like uh, Tales That Witness Madness, which was an anthology horror film, and The Craze. Those were both directed by the great Freddie Francis. Also was in Michael Anderson's Dominique, uh, another late 70s horror film with uh, Cliff Robertson. So... uh, you know, definitely a career that uh, hit the career where he was respected for his craft, and uh, like I said, had had a really known presence on stage and more so on the small screen. Like I said, than in, uh, in cinema, where he was probably looked at overall more as a supporting player. Um, but hey, Nicholas Alexander, I do want that's what I really like to check out. It's one that uh, Twilight Time tackled before I really kind of knew what Twilight Time was. They were a physical media label that. Um, would do runs of Blu-ray where they would do a limited number of uh, units and you'd have to buy it before it went out of print. And that was just it. There were, there were no more copies of them usually. And I didn't really kind of become aware of Twilight Time until uh, after some of those earlier titles had kind of gone out of print, like uh, Nicholas and Alexandra. And uh, good label Twilight Time. They, they, they still exist, although it's kind of different, has a different modus operandi than when it originally started uh, because one of the uh, main people behind it has passed on. But yeah, I still got to track that down and pick that up one of these days because I do want to, you know, I do want to see it, especially since uh, growing up, I was a fan of Doctor Who, uh, the old Doctor Who episodes. I had an uncle who watched it a lot and uh, my brother and I then would watch the tapes he had um, and they were mostly of Tom Baker, uh, the actor who played the fourth Doctor, which was, the longest running of the doctors. So he was the actor who played the doctor more than anyone else, and he was considered the most popular. And Baker is in Nicholas and Alexandra as Rasputin, and this was before he moved on to Doctor Who. So I've always been kind of interested in seeing it just because of that. It was also an early film. It might have actually been the first film that Brian Cox was in. Um, definitely was a very early performance I know of his. So I do want to check that out at some point. Moving on to new releases, exciting news that Film Masters, a label we've talked up a lot, 
is partnering with Something Weird Video on an upcoming release. So Something Weird Video is a, one of the giants in the uh, physical media world uh, when it comes to cult cinema. Started back in the VHS day and moved on to DVDs. They were started by uh, the great Mike Vraney, who passed away several years ago, way too young, only about 60. And his uh, widow, Lisa Petrucci, who was very active in the company while he was alive, has continued to carry on the mantle. Um, they had just an incredible, uh, just a massive collection of uh, film elements and titles. And, as, you know, as time has gone on, she's basically trying to, you know, that's a very difficult thing to manage as a, you know, kind of a one-person operation. So she's been, uh, you know, partnering with a lot of other labels to get these movies out. Uh, they've got a whole line of product that Kim Lorber has been putting out in collaboration with her. Uh, they've worked with seven films. Uh, they even have worked with Criterion. Uh, they had uh, Brian De Palma's early film Murder a la Mode, which was uh, included on the uh, Criterion release of Blowout. And so it's great to see that she is now teaming up with Film Masters. I believe this is the first release that they're partnering on. And it's called A Backwards Double Feature, um, going to include two films uh, making their Blu-ray debut, uh, which had private, previously been released by Something Weird video, at least on DVD. And the first one is uh, on this double feature is Common Law Wife. Uh, these are both kind of like basically hillbilly exploitation movies or redneck exploitation, whatever you want to call it. But uh, Common Law Wife, I wasn't familiar with. It's just reading up about it. And it basically it was a film that came out in 1961. And it started as a movie called uh, Swamp Rose, uh, which was shot in 1960 by Larry Buchanan, who uh, fans of cult cinema are very familiar with. He was a filmmaker out of Texas uh, who's kind of best known for a couple different phases in his career. The late 60s, AIP, American International Pictures, hired him to basically remake a, a bunch of their earlier 50s movies on uh, in an even lower budget than they had originally been made on. And uh, he did so. Uh, so he took, like, It Conquered the World and remade it as Zontar the Thing from Venus. He took um, The She-Creature and remade it as Creature of Destruction and so on and so forth. And then he also kind of had this reputation, Buchanan, for doing these kind of, like, really low budget biopics um he did one uh on uh, gene harlow and howard hughes um hughes and harlow angels in hell i think it was called he did one called down on us about like hendrix and joplin and uh jim morrison but yeah uh, early in his career this was one of the titles he worked on and um I don't know if the film was finished. It was unreleased, this original film, Swamp Rose, that Buchanan made. And apparently, uh, Common Law Wife is uh, another director coming along and shooting new footage, combining it with that, and then releasing this film. So definitely sounds like the kind of mangled-up, botched operation that I would love to check out. And the other movie on this Blu-ray um, is... From 1968, it's titled Jenny, Wife Slash Child. So you can figure that one out, I think, what, what kind of areas that's going to touch on. And these were actually released. I know there was um, something weird video would release uh, titles on burn-on-demand discs through their website uh, so where you could get basically access to just about anything they had. They had at least some kind of transfer on, even if it was just an old VHS transfer. But some of them they released on these double and triple feature DVDs, press discs releases that were uh, distributed by Image Entertainment. So these two films, Common Law Wife and Jenny Wife Child, they had actually been part of one of those Image Entertainment double feature DVDs. So basically, uh, Film Masters is going to come in and just uh, bring that into the high-def world. And very excited about that, as well as... Uh, what could come of this in the future? Because there just is a ridiculous amount of product that um, 
something weird video has that I don't, you know, it's kind of almost concerning. That, like, is it all ever going to make it out to disc? Um, because some of it's really, really on the fringe in terms of like exploitation with like, you know, totally no name casts and um, just not even real, really well known among the more, uh, the more active genre fans. So hopefully everything will eventually make its way uh, into the, into the sunlight uh, through something weird videos, various partnerships. All right. We're cutting right now into our movie of the week. This time we went to the eighties, 1981 to watch the Peter Yates movie. Eyewitness starring William Hurt and Sigourney Weaver. So the film is a, uh, a suspense movie in which Hurt plays a janitor at a large building, large office building who comes upon the murdered remains of one of the uh, tenants, a, uh, a man of Vietnamese heritage, which comes into play. Um, it's a, no, it's of note that that is his ancestry. Uh, a man of Vietnamese heritage who basically was kind of a, a broker, uh, in the, uh, in the darker sections of the world, uh, a guy who basically uh, could uh, a fixer, basically a guy who could get things done for you, uh, a buyer and seller of information, uh, a rather shady man, shall we say? And uh, Hurt comes across his body and is concerned that this crime may have been perpetrated by a friend of his, uh, played by James Woods, who had recently been fired. Uh, from his his job working as also as a janitor at this building because of an altercation he had with this murdered man and also because the two of them had served together in uh, the Vietnam War and uh, this guy who was killed had been someone who was willing to sell out uh, information to either sides of that conflict so you know, hurt is um, reluctant to uh, basically broadcast that uh, uh, he comes that he came across this body that he found found this guy dead or that he's any way uh, connected to this incident because uh, of he's afraid of implicating his his pal. That being said, her also has had a longtime crush on this local news anchor played by Sigourney Weaver and realizes that uh, by kind of like leading her on about that he might know something about this crime that he can maybe strike up a relationship with her and uh, is hoping to kind of pursue that. Meanwhile, the police are kind of getting on to uh, the idea that uh, Hurt might know more than he's letting on, uh, or the, and because of that, they also begin to suspect James Woods uh, as perhaps being involved in this crime. These cops, the two cops who are in charge of the case, played by Morgan Freeman, a pre-stardom Morgan Freeman, and Stephen Hill, uh, who you might know as uh, D.A. Adam Schiff on Law & Order. This was a, few, a little less than a decade before he landed that role, and after he had uh, been the star of the first season of the original Mission Impossible. So they're kind of, uh, you know, on this case and, uh, you know, their, their suspicions are being raised. And then there is the murderer, whoever that may be. I shall not say, I shall not divulge any spoilers, but that's individual or individuals also. Um, it's not going to let the situation stay as it is. So this film was a re- reunion for the director and the screenwriter. Uh, it was directed by Peter Yates, the excellent British filmmaker who did such classic films as uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Um, he did The Dresser, which came after this with Albert Finney and Tom Courtney. And he directed one of my all-time favorite films, Bullet with Steve McQueen. And prior to directing this movie, uh, 
the film that had come out right before this that he had done was the classic 1979 coming of age uh, flick Breaking Away, which is a big hit. Uh, you know, won Best Screenplay Oscar, was nominated for like Best Picture Director, uh, you know, a big stepping stone in the careers of like Daniel Stern and Dennis Quaid. And the writer of that who had taken home an Oscar uh, was Steve Tesich. And this film brought those two back together, Yates and Tesich. It would be the second of three collaborations they would do. They also worked together on the film Eleni uh, a couple years after this. And it's interesting and totally uh, makes sense that the origins of this film were that Tessich was working on two different scripts, and it was Yates's idea to 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 say, "Well, you can't get either of these scripts off the ground; just combine them, put them into one movie, and we'll make that as a film, which will be Eyewitness." And I read that after watching the movie, but you kind of knew that while you were watching the movie. This film is so clearly two different flicks that are someone is trying to attempt to weave into one. There's movie A, which is William Hurt, uh, returning a decorated Vietnam vet, trying to re you know, readjusting to civilian life, enjoying his just kind of by the numbers, challengeless nine to five job. He's got a buddy who was also in the military with him, James Woods, and who is trying to hook him up with his sister and wants to have like the kind of family connection between him and Hurt. And you know, they have ideas of maybe opening up their own business and, you know, it's just following this guy also with his own family life, you know, the issues between his own parents who have kind of a, a troubled marriage. His father's in a wheelchair, uh, played by the great character actor Kenneth McMillan, um, who people may know from his recurring role in later seasons of Rhoda or from Dune or Salem's Lot, but terrific character actor, one of my faves from that era. So that's like movie A. Movie B is the whole janitor comes across a murdered guy in an office building doesn't want to let on what he knows until he realizes it might help him win the affections of a popular lovely looking lady and this of course all results in uh, conflict with both police and whoever the killer is and it is so so incredibly apparent that these two movies just are coming from these these two different aspects of the narrative are coming from different worlds that they were they are not it's not organic that these um that these the two faces of this film uh should belong together i mean this there are deviations the narrative takes just to spend time with uh you know William Hurt uh, interacting with his dad and just these kind of like very character driven moments which is fine i have no problem with those kind of moments in a film which is supposed to be suspense or genre or horror but it never feels natural it always feels like we're we're opening up a door and stepping out of movie A and going into movie B. And then then when it's time to go back into suspense mode, we, we open up that door again and go back. They It, it never feels homogenous at all. Um, these transitions between the suspense film and the uh, character-driven drama film. And even like, uh, you know, like, uh, you have a whole, uh, you know, this whole subplot about James Woods hoping that uh, William Hurt will hook up with his sister played by the lovely Pamela Reed early in her career. And again, those scenes, which are, are kind of played for comic relief, they just feel tonally, uh, again, tonally completely out of whack with the suspense parts of the, of the movie. Yeah, again, it, I think it would have worked had it been in the 
had those kind of comedic moments been in the uh, more drama character-driven film, if that had gotten off the ground and been made just as in and of itself, but it, you know, put in the same uh, pot with the uh, with the suspense movie, it just seems really kind of jarring to have those those moments happen. But you know, complicating the things too is that you not only do you have this strange mixture of a, a suspense movie and this drama movie is also the fact that the suspense movie doesn't work. Uh, I would say that I would say the dr- the drama movie doesn't work uh, either, but it is stronger than the suspense film. I mean, this f- movie really struggles to generate tension or any kind of stakes. You never really feel like Hurt's character is at risk, nor do you really care, I think, either what happens to his character. Um, And the moments that are kind of suspense-driven, they kind of, you know, uh, the moments that would be kind of classically make their way into a trailer where... uh, you know, if actually, if you do watch the trailer, you can see this. You know, scenes with you know him in a car chase, or him being attacked by a dog, or um, there's a scene where he's in a compactor and it turns on. You know, these and this isn't spoiler territory. This is all in the trailer. Trust me. Uh, they just in the way they're constructed um, and the way that they play out. They just never really build up any sense of uh, suspense or concern for what's going to happen to the character. They're just kind of like thrown in there, obligatory, uh, almost as if they're obligatory action beats or suspense beats. Like we've gone this long in the movie. We've we spent 15 minutes, uh, you, know, you know, pushing forward these character moments or trying to advance the plot. We need to have a suspense uh, uh, scene or, uh, or sequence in this film in order to really sell it as a suspense film. So let's just throw in a car chase or let's just, you know, have this happen. And like I said, it never feels... Um, like something that's general, genuinely uh, uh, putting the character at risk or making you feel that that they're at risk or making you feel on on the edge, and you know Yates talked about later on about how he he identified that that was what Tessa the screenwriter really struggled with. He said he's really good at writing, you know, depicting these characters, uh, but you know, the suspense aspects of the film was what he really struggled with, which kind of, you know, I mean, obviously he came off the Oscar for Breaking Away, which is a film which is all about character and and drama and and spending time with people, uh, uh, you know, leisurely. So I don't know. It's kind of like, why did you, why did you encourage this to happen, Peter Yates? Why did you say, hey, my buddy screenwriter who is just won the Oscar for a drama and has a drama script and a suspense script that he can't, he's not able to move forward on and he's not really good at suspense let's just let's just make this movie anyways i don't know maybe that's kind of like the whole thing where you're you're, you're riding high off a hit because you know like i said yates got nominated for two nominations best picture and director because he's a producer on breaking away maybe he just felt like ah we can make this happen we can we'll be unstoppable with this but it, it just never comes together and it's interesting too i mean part of this is just watching this film through a modern day, a contemporary lens is the whole idea of hurt basically trying to put the moves on this, this reporter who's like a very, you know, Sigourney Weaver plays a very successful uh, television reporter who comes from a very affluent family too. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of, when she, when he sees her at the crime scene and he kind of, you know, leads her on that he, he'd like to talk to her about the, 
uh, what happened in this building. And then she's like, oh, okay. And she gets her crew together and they go over to his side of the building and start filming him. And then he just immediately starts putting the moves on her and telling her how he's got a big crush on her. I mean, these days that would be like complete, um, that would be like complete stalker material. <laughs> He'd be like, oh, easy, bud. And I'm not the, I'm not someone who watches, you know, these movies and really sees them through, um, you know, the way who examines them necessarily through the way we view things now. I, I, I can take into account the context of the times. Um, so when I saw this, <laughs> when I saw Hurt's behavior in the scene and throughout the film, as he's really began pursuing this relationship with her, and it really kind of stood out as really kind of strange. I'm like, am I just being, you know, am I just, you know, uh, do I have some kind of uh, subconscious bias where I'm just basically reacting to this because in, in this day and age, with the whole you know stalker culture that came up in the in the late '80s, you know, a few years after this film was made, the awareness of like stalkers and serial killers and psychos, and you know now we live in, of course, in an era of like mass shooters and terrorists. Um, is this something that you know I'm just watching this and I'm reading it through kind of like? Uh, you know, a contemporary uh, viewpoint. Is, is his behavior really not strange? Is is it kind of normal what he's doing? Is it kind of cute? Is it kind of basically a meat cute? Um, and no, I think it's kind of strange. <laughs> I think uh, I think for Sigourney Weaver's character to kind of um, be enchanted by it at all is a little tough to swallow. And there's the aspect of it where she's kind of interested in finding out what the story is he might have to offer her and that kind of is kind of presented as part of her motivation for wanting to get to know him better is that she thinks he might know more about the crime and i guess you could argue from that uh you know a natural relationship might develop but it's still it's just a kind of a big stretch i think i think it's the kind of stretch that if the film had been better constructed overall you might give it uh give it a pass but because the film is struggling so much uh you know with its narrative that faults like that kind of stand out more. Um, and you kind of, uh, you know, you kind of walk away like, all right, she comes from this really wealthy background. She's a successful reporter. Uh, you know, that's a, you know, that's, a, I, I never worked in the reporting field, but I've worked, you know, I obviously went to school for communications and we studied journalism and, you know, I've worked jobs in film. So I very much understand that mindset and uh, what that must be like to be a, like, uh, you know, a high stakes, uh, high pressure reporter, uh, you know, with a, a big position on a major, uh, major city network. And the idea of like her, you know, kind of starting to fall for a janitor uh, who, you know, that's what he does. That's his whole, that's his whole thing. He works as a janitor. Yeah. He's, he's kind of charming and he, he's not an idiot, but like those still, those two worlds are so incredibly different. If you're going to sell to me the idea that she's going to be interested in a guy with this kind of background, that they're going to be able to find something to like bridge the gap so that they can relate to each other. Cause that's a huge gap, you know, their lives, their jobs, their interests, their social backgrounds, everything is so different. So, for, to, to buy the idea that they could be uh, kind of interested in each other, truly interested in each other, you really got to put some work into selling that. And the film doesn't do that either. It just always, you know, with the, uh, it's the kind of thing that as you're watching the movie, you don't know what the ending is going to be yet, but you're like, okay, there's one possible ending we know is going to be that they're going to be halfway ever after. That's the way a lot of these genre films go. I mean, could two people like that ever really, truly live happily ever after? I mean, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I think I mentioned it before, the Rewatchables, which is uh, 
does a great great job in dissecting uh movies with uh, you know huge uh hugely popular reputations and one of the they kind of break down the movies they watch into different categories. So one of the things they ask about the movies they watch is what happens the next day. In other words, the film ends. We see the end of the film's storyline, and we ask ourselves, okay, then what what happens after this? Where do these characters go? You know, uh, what happens to Morgan Freeman after the end of Seven? You know, <laughs> what happens to Brad Pitt at the end of that movie? And this is one of those films where, like, you as you're watching it, you're like, okay, I can see that this might end. I don't know how it's going to end, but it might end with them, you know, happily ever after. Like really what is, does happen the next day? Let's say that, you know, the, this crisis that is central to the plot of this movie is resolved. What happens to these two? You know, how do they go on and live a life together where, you know, she's basically working a job that would in all reality be, uh, you know, high pressure and and non-stop like that's the kind of job where you're working you're not just doing 40 or 50 hours a week you're probably doing like 60 70 hours a week you're always on call always having to travel um uh, you know uh, you're you're interacting with people at like the upper echelons of business and culture and pop popular entertainment and then your significant other is just you know spending all day you know cleaning in office buildings and i just don't and that by no by no means is a dig at either one of those professions. Uh, you know, you want to be a reporter or a janitor, nothing wrong with that either way, but for those two to kind of come and meet together, can it happen? Absolutely. There are obviously countless stories of that kind of thing happening, but you're trying to convince me within the 90 to 100 minutes of a movie that that might be able to happen. That's a whole different thing altogether, and you have to really put the work in to make that happen. Can you do that? Can you sell that idea in a film? Absolutely. But like I said, in a film that's already struggling just to be good at its most basic responsibility, which is uh, a suspense film, then, you know, secondary uh, secondary obligations of uh, selling the believability of your characters and their relationships, you're, you're probably not going to hit on those either. So it's definitely a film that, but, it, you know, it falls again into that whole category of movies that even though I would... I do not call it a good movie. I enjoyed watching it. You know, there's just something about uh, the suspense genre of this time. There seem to be all these movies coming out these at this point, which, you know, the the better known ones would have been like what the Palma was doing. But there's kind of like these almost, I guess you could say, Hitchcockian films that were that were big in, in, at this point. And probably like, like I said, like with the Palma was really hitting it in the mid-70s, he was starting to make this happen with stuff like Obsession. And, um, you know, moving on to, the, you know, stuff like Trust to Kill and um, Blowout. And then you had, you know, films like this and Still of the Night and uh, Last Embrace. And, you know, you move on to movies like Fatal Attraction and Into the 90s, Basic Instinct and Disclosure, basically all the Michael Douglas stuff. I mean, it was just, there's this really good run of like probably 20 years, maybe 25 into like the late 90s. But I think the high point is kind of looked at as that like 25, 20 like 20 year period, I'm sorry, uh, mid seventies to mid nineties where like the whole suspense genre and the John Grisham adaptations and stuff like presumed innocent. And then you had, you know, movies like the fugitive where it was like, on, that was like on a whole other level of popularity and, and critical reaction. Uh, but this, this kind of era was really hot for like the suspense film. And, uh, and it was a lot of different directors basically filling the void of Hitchcock that he had kind of, he had been kind of the big guy uh, known for that kind of stuff back in the day, him. And, and I think you got to give some shout out to Stanley Donnan as well for stuff like Charade and to a lesser extent Arabesque. But, you know, DePaul was kind of the big name at this kind of thing. But yeah, you had all these other films coming out at that time. So to watch a movie that's uh, an example of that kind of uh, film from that era that's kind of, 
the era where that genre is really was popular again even though this is not one of the more successful entries into that it's still still rewarding to watch it and uh you know again just something is basically is just seeing you know 80s <laughs> seeing the big city in the 80s shot on film uh you know, because it's 1981, just that aesthetic, you know, even though, again, I, would not, I, was, I wouldn't say there's anything that's noteworthy about the cinematography, the production design of this film, but there's just still something, I think, rewarding about seeing um, an example of this type of film that was so popular, even, if, again, not, not one of the, uh, not reference material, not reference material at all, but still, um, you, you don't, I didn't regret having watched it. So this marked uh, an early an early credit for uh, the careers of some of the key people involved. This was Hurt's second film. He uh, only his second movie, uh, following up on uh, Altered State. And for Sigourney Weaver, it was just her fourth movie. She had the small part in Annie Hall. She had um, done a film, had a supporting part in a, a lesser-known movie called Madman, um, and then had been in Alien, which, of course, was a huge hit. And this was her first movie after Alien. And now Pamela Reed, as we mentioned before, who I'm definitely a fan of. This was only her third theatrically released movie following uh, Walter Hill's The Long Riders and uh, Jonathan Demme's Melvin and Howard. The film was originally to be titled uh, The Janitor, and uh, that is what it ended up being released as in the UK uh, because they had already had some films titled Eyewitness. And uh, for a little while, actually, they changed the title uh, again in the US They were as a working title to The Janitor Doesn't Dance before finally landing on Eyewitness. The film did not do too well at the box office. Um, it grossed millions, a couple million dollars at least less than its uh, budget. It was a budget rate, different sources either cited as six and a half or eight and a half million, but it only brought in at the box office four and a half. So it definitely, definitely did not uh, do much for 20th Century Fox, but obviously didn't really hurt the careers of anyone involved. You know, Hurt would go into Body Heat, would be his next movie, and that would begin this whole collaborations with Lawrence Kasdan. And of course, Sigourney Weaver still going strong, and Peter Yates would, you know, get another Best Director nomination after this with The Dresser. So, did not did not derail anyone's careers. So I think that's it for now. Uh, a little bit of a shorter episode this week, but uh, that doesn't you know have any reference on quality. We hope. Um, thank you for joining us uh, for this episode of Carpet City Cinema. To continue to show us some love by way of. Uh, your interactions with whatever platform you are listening to this on, be it YouTube, Spotify, iTunes. Give us the love. Give us the top, the best reviews you possibly can. And until next week, take care.